It's Tuesday, and you know what that means. It's a Blinded by Sports Tuesday here on thecandyclark.com and Spotify. I'm Colin Future, host this Tuesday, joined by my wonderful co-host, who's sporting the Borussia Dortmund kit and jacket today, Sean Clark. Sean, how are you today? Yes, doing great. Yes, repping the Dortmund in honor of Gio Reyna, who scored his first goal for the U.S. men's national team, which we'll talk about shortly. But I'm also doing great because the Patriots beat the Ravens, and the Ravens are, the, in my opinion, the true nemesis of the Patriots dynasty and my least favorite team in the NFL. So, and I also don't like Lamar Jackson, so I have great satisfaction. Con, let's get into this. What you got for me today? Let's get into it indeed. You mentioned it yourself, Sean, talking about Gio Reyna, you know, the, the young star who we saw come through the Borussia Dortmund ranks and is now actually becoming that starting 11 and has been a very key component in Borussia's success so far this season. The U.S. men's national team, we talked about them last week. We previewed them and we had their two matches. We had them against Wales and now we had them against Panama. Let's start with the Wales game. This obviously, this is a brand new starting 11 for Greg Berhalter and company. Uh, obviously, no Christian Pulisic. Obviously, we're, we're missing some key MLS stars. We're looking at maybe Brendan Aronson. We're looking at, you know, Jordan Morris, guys who, who couldn't be there for MLS, preview, uh, MLS Cup playoffs, which we will talk about later. So we saw some new fill-ins come in. So a completely almost unknown starting 11. Uh, Sean, take us through the Wales game. Obviously ended in a 0-0 draw, but playing against a club like Wales, especially with a brand new 11, uh, were you upset with the result? I'm not too upset about this match just because this was the first international match for the U.S. men's national team in over eight months. Over eight months. So there was going to be a lot of rust, and also with the MLS playoffs, they weren't able to field the lineup that they wanted. They fielded a bunch of players from other European leagues. They didn't really have many great chances. Gio Reyna had a solid chance, but other than that, it was a very steel match. It was, it was, it was basically just a back-and-forth match in the midfield. Neither team was able to get much traction. Sebastian Legette could not crack through to get a goal. It was just a very dull match, to be perfectly honest. And I think I think this this was a match that U.S. men's national team was shaking off the cobwebs. That that's to me is what this match ultimately was. And in the in the following match, you saw them actually get into a rhythm. Uh, yeah, this was definitely. I mean, having a new eleven, uh, you know, you look back at the the match they had before Wales. You know, you talked eight months ago. Against Costa Rica was their last match that they had uh, a one one nil law or one nil win. Sorry, I should say. Um, and a lot of the players that we saw out on the field against Wales weren't even a thought process for Greg Berhalter, Greg Berhalter and the U.S. men's national team uh, during that one nil win. And so seeing these new young guys come in without those MLS players, the first non ml for the first no mls lineup and i think u.s men's national team history i mean granted previous stuff but since the league's inception um so i think having a bunch of young players you know the the average age on this team was 22 years old which is if you're looking for bright young u.s talent there you go it's on display on the field right there so against the wales team that was especially we knew when we even previewed it last week this was going to be a defense heavy club the defense heavy nation national team 
Um, Gio Reyna didn't even have the best day either. Uh, he didn't look super lively. I think he was worn out a little bit from playing uh, with Dortmund. But obviously, us transitioning now into the Panama match, this is what these, these two matches, granted, this is Panama and Wales, two clubs that aren't going to be contending for too much. This was definitely a Panama young team as well. Uh, but we definitely got the result that you wanted, a 6-2 win for the U.S. men's team. Sean, what did you see in this match compared to the Wales match uh, that really stood out to you? Well, what I saw in this match was a team that actually looked like they were in rhythm and they actually had energy. As you mentioned, they, they were probably all the players were probably a little bit tired from playing in Europe. So it was U.S. was definitely a fresher in this match. And while the back line did concede two goals, which was a bit questionable. The attack looked tremendous. Gio Reyna scored his first goal for US Men's National Team on a on a free kick where he just he just line drived it past the goalkeeper's left for a for a goal to equalize. And how about Nicholas Giacchini? Giacchini. Giacchini. Okay, my my bad. I've got you, Sean. <laughs> yeah, and Sebastian Soto. How about these two players? each getting two goals. And I had to look up who they played for because I had I, I was not familiar with them heading into this match. So Giacinki pl- plays for, oh, okay. How, I study Maherde Kane. I, where, where is that, Sean? <laughs> that, is the, that is the second tier French league. I apologize to any French listeners. I probably butchered the heck out of that. And Sebastian Soto plays for SC Telstar, which which sounds like a village in Skyrim. And that is the second division in the Dutch League. So the, the, the division below the one that Ajax dominates every single year. So th- these two youngsters playing in clubs I have never heard of, Scoring two goals shows just how bright of a future the U.S. men's national team has. There's a lot of exciting prospects on this team, and this is something we didn't see a few years ago. A few years ago, we just saw a bunch of old veterans getting playing time and being absolutely terrible. Just look up Alexi Lawless's rant on the U.S. men's national team a few years ago, which was perfect because it showed what it was at the time. Now U.S. is a team that is full of youngsters and promising talent, which was not the case a few years ago. So it really goes to show just how bright the future is for the U.S. men's national team, as you highlighted in your few fortunes of the U.S. men's national team. And I'll end with this. So U.S. continues to just dominate Panama. How It still boggles my mind that Panama was in the World Cup and not U.S. It this match just makes that even more frustrating, but luckily brighter days are ahead. We can, we're slowly moving on from the dark days of October 10th, 2017, a day that even when I'm 90 years old, I'll never forget. Absolutely. You know, the U S should have been in the world cup. That's ultimately the point that we got here, but we weren't. And I think that was a great wake up call for the, for the United States soccer federation. Uh, so this 6-2 result, granted, yes, it was against a Panama B, even C team. This is a bunch of their youngsters taking on ours, uh, granted, because there's either playoffs going or players that didn't want to play for the country because they're trying to get back into, back into rhythm. Um, 
but seeing this 11 versus the one that we had in Wales, granted, we had a lot more of that similar uh, lineup. Look at what they were able to do. And there's a few players, you know, you got to highlight. Obviously, you got to look at the studs we've been used to. Weston McKinney was an absolute catalyst in that midfield, not only shutting down plays where needed, but also setting up a lot of attacks, especially on that third goal that was scored off a crazy little almost played out of the end line of Panama and keeps it in play, gets the assist. Um, and then, you know, look at Reggie Cannon, you know, our boy Reggie Cannon, former right back for FC Dallas, uh, now playing what in Portugal, I believe. Um, just looked fantastic. He provided a lot of service out there. And I think he played a great contrast, especially in a guy like Serginho Dez, who's playing in, you know, in the starting 11 for FC Barcelona, which uh, two different, two different mentalities and two different clubs, obviously. Uh, look at Yunus Musa though, too, as well who was just a stud. He's only, I think, 18 years old. He torched the Panama midfield. He could carry that ball left. He could carry basically wherever he wanted. He has plenty of speed. He's got a lot of ability to be able to break a defense down. And what I really liked in comparison to this is obviously Panama took the lead early on on a beautiful cross, mind you, that found the head of Fajardo to the uh, far post uh, uh, against Zach Steffen. And Zach Steffen really didn't have a lot to do the entire match until that I'll say the final half hour of the second half. Uh, but a lot of these players stepped up and you liked seeing the adversity that they had to go against. You know, this was a team that the U.S. was expected to beat. And going down one nil, you know, your backs are now against the wall. You've got to score two goals and get the win you're expected to get. And we're going to see a lot of people hate against, you know, the fact that they got this win. And it's like, oh, it's only Panama. Yes, but you shouldn't just say that because it's the result you were expected to get. And so the fact that you were able to do it, you know, by a four goal margin, yes, the defense has to shore itself up a little more. I think Tim Ream being back there, congratulations to him getting his captain, his captainship. But I don't think that's the, that's the best pairing back there. I still prefer John Brooks back there. I would like to see Chris Richards get a little bit more of a start back there. Um, this is very, this is not the, the, the starting 11 for the world cup that we're going to see by any means, but we're now starting to see that we have the talent to really, I think, be a force going later on. But the U.S. needs to lock down Yunus Musa and Sebastian Soto because they do have other national teams that they can play for. And we've seen them do it in the past because at this young age, you have the ability. But once you're qualified for the senior national team, you do have to make a certain choice at a point. So U.S., lock them down, get Musa, get Soto, get those guys in. Because the difference between that Wales game and this Panama game is we had a true number nine starting. We saw Gio Reyna have a bright spot. We obviously saw Weston McKinney be that catalyst. Tyler Adams started rough and it uh, ended doing pretty well. So I think as an 11, this was, I would say, maybe a six or seven out of 10 uh, on, a, on a rating of what you could have done against this Panama team. I think it could have been better. I think you obviously, there was that. Giochini should have had a hat trick. Uh, he had a terrible penalty taken that was saved against him. It should have been 7-2. We, beggars can't be choosers, though. I'll, I'll take a one draw, one win, especially in two, their, what, second game after being gone for eight months. I'll take it. Can't complain too much about that. Moving on from a national perspective, though, to let's look at it. Uh, you know, MLS, we've talked about. Playoffs are coming soon my favorite time of year mls cup playoffs especially now that it's no longer the two game aggregate we're down to the one game one game little shootout here 
MLS Cup playoffs, Sean. Obviously, love this time of year. Let's start out in the Eastern Conference play-in games. There, there had to have a play-in game because Eastern Conference being bigger, so they're trying to see, hey, who can make it in? And we have a battle of the expansion. So let, let's, we're just going to go rapid fire here, Sean. Start with the play-ins, then East Coast, then we'll go West Coast. So let's go. Let's start with Nashville taking on Inner Miami. Who do you like? Who wins? Then we move on to the next match. I like Nashville for Miami. Their back line has been very solid. Walker Zimmerman, I feel like, is going to score the winning goal. Nashville, but I like them more all around. They take it. That's I, I have to agree with you as well. I think Nashville has showed more brighter sparks. We obviously saw uh, what they were able to do against Orlando, taking it uh, very late on in that, winning 3-2 out there, especially against an Oscar Pereja club that's been tough to beat. I see Nashville taking it as well. Moving over to New England and Montreal, who do you like there? As much as I don't want to go against the Arsenal GOAT, Thierry Henry, I have to. Montreal has conceded the most goals in the Eastern Conference I think New England takes it. They just have too much firepower on the front line. Yeah. I, okay. So you and I are in, in, in sharing mindset here. We both think that Nashville and New England are moving through. I think Bruce Arenas, you know, head coach now for the, for the New England Revolution, taking on Terry Henry, first-year head coach for the Montreal Impact. I think what Arenas has been able to do with the Revolution, being able to take over for this club, and show what he's been able to produce, even with the you know missing of Carlos Heel and stuff like that. Uh, just to be able to make it to this point, be able to make it to the play-ins. Uh, here we are. So Bruce Arenas, I think, takes it over Thierry Henry. Which would I be saying that sentence in a normal time? That's just bizarre to say. So the higher seed taking against Toronto. So I want to say, is that New England and Toronto? Question mark. I believe uh, it, it would act. It would actually be be Nashville, right? Nashville, Nashville against Nash- Toronto and New England. Nashville, Toronto, and New England, and Philly. So let's go. Start with Toronto and New England, or in uh, Nashville. Who do you like there? Alejandro Pozuelo plays for Toronto. End of story. There you go. So Toronto, there. Uh, you know, you I you got to go with Toronto. The experience that Greg Vanny has been able to build with this. Uh, with this Toronto club. And I think Nashville, congratulations for them getting this far. But Alejandro Pozuelo, if the back line can really get uh, get intact, get in this connection, I think if uh, Quentin Westberg can have a good game in goal. And I really think, depending on who they put up front, whether it be uh, Altidore, if you know, he can stay healthy, or if they put Ayo Akinola in, either way, I think Toronto wins. Philly taking on New England. Sean, who do you like there? As much as I want an all-time shocker to happen, Philly has too much firepower. They're not going to choke yet. They will. They will win this match easily. No, I, I agree. Philly. Philly is obviously supporter shield champions. Jim Curtin is now the reigning M, uh, MLS coach of the year. Should have been Oscar Pereja, um, but there's a reason he was MLS coach of the year. Philly has just been trending upwards, signing good players, building that depth. And I think their depth and ultimately just what they've been able to do with their midfield and being able to find the back of the net, just going to do too much to Bruce Arenas and uh, New England. Moving on to Orlando taking on NYC FC. I'll be honest. This is the one match in the first round that I don't feel comfortable with my pick. I, uh, I'm going to go with Orlando 
Just barely. And the reason I give him the edge is because Chris Muller has been an absolute stud for Orlando City in the last couple months. He's been on a torrid pace. And NYCFC, yes, they got good playmakers, but like Maxi Morales. But we saw what NYCFC did in the playoffs last year against Toronto. They are underachievers in the playoffs, and Orlando just has too much momentum. And remember, this is the same club that made it to the MLS is back tournament final. And also, I feel like Nani's going to do something special too. So, I got Orlando, but it's going to be close. I do think it's funny, Sean, that you are so hesitant to say that Orlando would not win this match because I feel pretty confident that they would just because you look at the talent that they uh, they have out there. Obviously, Luis Nani. You've got Daryl. Daryl Dyke, Daryl DK, however you say it, who's just been a stud since his signing with Orlando. He's a massive number nine out there. He's going to be a handful for that back line of NYC FC to deal with. And then you look at guys like Benji Michelle, who's been coming off the bench. And then you mentioned Chris Mueller, even uh, Perea out there in the, in the midfield. I think there's just too much talent in that midfield and that, uh, that front that in comparison to what NYC FC bring to the table, I think Orlando actually takes it pretty comfortably. Moving on to your guys, the Columbus crew, and, and uh, the other New York team, the New York Red Bulls. I think you and I are in comparison here, Sean. Who do we think is going to win here? Okay, well, first of all, go Loons. So that's who my guys okay, are. Okay, your, your East team, because in our Philly-Columbus debate here. <laughs> yes. Uh, obviously going to go Columbus. There is, there is absolutely nothing special about this New York Red Bulls team. The fact that Tom Barlow is your main scorer shows – just how far the Red Bulls have fallen from the dominant team that they had in 2018. I think Columbus takes it one, nothing as they completely shut down the Red Bulls offense. Yeah. And that that's the key here is uh, did they pull off an amazing upset over, you know, Toronto? Yes, they did, but they had to rely on some unlikely goal scores and Tom Barlow and Brian white. Uh, and then, you know, they kind of just sat back and part the bus and even still, it was only a two, one win ultimately. Uh, you know, to help preserve their playoff life. But yeah, I, I think, you know, you got to look at Columbus out here. Jossie's artist was actually up there in the top three when it came to the golden boot, which who would have thought I'd be saying that this season. Jossie's artist also is Lucas Elleriano is back healthy, uh, being able to, you know, nitpick things and Pedro Santos out there that compliments them. And then obviously I think, I don't understand how he still continues to be such an underrated player former Portland Timber, former Atlanta United man, now Columbus crew member, Darlington Nagme out there in the central midfield, being able to pull the strings there. I think there's just, once again, I think talent outweighs uh, what's going to happen with New York. This is not the same New York Red Bulls that we saw just even three seasons ago. Moving out West, I think the West is going to be interesting. I think this is going to be where we're going to see some shocks and awe happen out here. So let's start. Let's start, you know, with the number one seed out in the West, taking on the San Jose Earthquakes. SKC taking on the San Jose Earthquakes. Who do you like in this matchup? A part of me really wants to pull the trigger and pick the Earthquakes. You know what? I will. I am going to pick the San Jose Earthquakes to shock Sporting KC. Sporting KC is the worst number one seed I have ever seen in any sport. I don't. I my mind is boggled how they finished above the Sounders and the Timbers. I I truly do not understand it. The only reason I can come up with is that Seattle and Portland just beat up each other. That's like the one thing I can come up with as to why Sporting KC got the one seed. Yeah, Sporting KC is defensively in midfield stout, 
But yeah, San Jose kind of has a guy named Chris Wondolowski who, if he gets hot, he can really explode. And we've seen Sporting KC falter against creative teams like the Timbers in 2018, for example. I think San Jose in the one-match format, if this was two, I'd pick Sporting KC. But because it's one match, I think San Jose gets hot. They have nothing to lose. And I think they take the shocking upset. Boom, I said it. I, uh, You know, Sean, just to, just to go against it, because you know we agreed on the whole East Coast, I am going to pick Kansas City. And the only reason why is... You look at what they've been able to do with their roster. Obviously, Johnny Russell is just, has just been a stud since his inception into the league. They've got Roger, Espino, uh, Roger Espinoza, Gerson Fernandez, uh, John Luca Busio, who's actually been one of the youngsters that surprised me, even playing for a sport in Kansas City. And then obviously, Eric Hurtado. Um, there, there's just a lot of fire for this club, a lot of firepower for this club. And we've seen, obviously, San Jose have a very shaky backline at times. Granted, they've shored that up a little bit more. But we saw what Seattle was able to do against them in that closing matchup, the winning 4-1 there. So I think I got to pick Sporting Kansas City, especially playing at home. And they're also ha- they're one of the very few cities right now that are allowing fans. I think just that little bit of fan atmosphere out there is just going to ultimately what's going to end up taking it. Moving on to the, former, the following matchup, we're going to talk Minnesota United, your boys out West, taking on the Colorado Rapids, who played the least amount of matches out of anyone in MLS. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. This is a going to be a very close matchup that's going to make me extremely nervous to watch. This is Minnesota United's second playoff match ever. Last year it was their first against the LA Galaxy, and they lost 2-1, to one, which was terrible to watch, to say the least. I watched Ethan Finley have the worst performance I've ever seen in any soccer match I've ever seen. But Ethan Finley's had a solid season so far. And how about Robin Lode? Nine goals this season out of the midfield spot. He is he has been at the right place at the right time on many goals this season. He has great finishing ability. And I think because of Ico because of Michael Parr, because of Ozzy Alonso, the, the Seattle, Seattle Sounders legend, I think Minnesota has just enough defense to be able to hold off Colorado. And I think and I, I think that Luis Amarillo, who hasn't been as good as advertised, I think he steals a late winner with the assist from load. I, I think it's going to be 0-0 most of the match, and it's going to be very ugly. But ultimately... I think Minnesota gets it done late and I'm going to lose my mind and Minnesota will then play their better rival sporting KC potentially in the next round. Although I do think it's going to be San Jose. So Sounders loons on the conference finals, perhaps we'll see. We'll stick with the first round for now. Sean, I hate to do this to you. Uh, just, I, I got to pick Colorado here and I, I know you're probably going to be looking at me crazy and I expect that nonetheless, um, but here's my reason why. First off, like I mentioned, they've played the least amount of matches simply because of their COVID cases. They played what eight, 17, 18 matches so far. The two games that they played against the Minnesota United was a two, two draw and then a two, one win for Minnesota. But you look at the change that Colorado was able to make. This was one of the hottest clubs coming in to it, into the, uh, into the season before the COVID shutdown. And even after everything, this was a team that, while they were figuring out their back line, has, you know, just had back-to-back wins, not only against 
obviously, granted, their last match was against Houston Dynamo, but they beat Portland and they beat Seattle. And against that Seattle game, it was a pretty convincing 3-1 win. Uh, they've done the, th- the, th- the biggest thing for me of what, why Colorado will take this is simply look at, once again, the depth is what has ultimately won out playoffs here so far, especially in MLS. We see what depth can do. But Andre Shinyashiki, they've got Nicholas Mesquita. They have a man I'm not too fond of, which is uh, Benize, who formerly played for Toronto, who almost scored, opened up the uh, MLS Cup last season against Seattle. Uh, Diego Rubio, they've got Keegan Rosenberry, who had an absolute scorcher against Seattle. Uh, there's just a lot of depth on this team, or on this club, I should say. And I, I ultimately think they pull it out against uh, against Minnesota. And it breaks my heart to say that against you, Sean, but I, I do think they end up taking it. Fine. I, I get it. I get it. I moving, get. moving on, we've got Portland taking on FC Dallas, who FC Dallas to me has been one of the most disappointing teams to me in MLS playoffs. Sean, who do you think takes it here? I think we'd be in agreement here. Portland. Portland's basically is basically Dallas, but better. That I don't need to say anymore. Yeah, uh, Portland. Portland takes it. Not only do they get to play at home, granted there's no fans, but you got the Charas. Uh, you got a healthy Jeremy Obobese coming back. Granted, you have no more Sebastian Blanco. You got Diego Valeri that that's playing obviously just fine. There's just I I don't see FC Dallas picking apart Portland. I think this is a very comfortable win for Portland. Moving on to, I don't know how Seattle manages to have the same teams to play every season and every MLS Cup playoffs. We've got the Seattle Sounders taking on the LAFC uh, in Seattle this time around, though. Sean, who do you like in this and why? Well, I'll I'll sum it up this way. If Seattle could beat them last season, then they'll easily beat them this season. Yes, LASC does a cross veil back, and obviously they're going to be a threat, but LASC has no back line to speak of. They have no defense, and LAFC is going to rely solely on the on the, on the the counterattack. Also, Diego Rossi uh, most likely is not going to be available because, because of, of him playing for Uruguay. So LAFC is going to be very shorthanded, and on top of that, their back line is awful. I think Seattle wins this. I'm going to say 5-2. to two. I won't, I won't be that confident in a scoreline. I, I love that idea of having that kind of scoreline. But, yeah, you mentioned it. Granted, in the, L, in, you know, the MLS's back tournament, LAFC got their revenge. And then, you know, they had the back-and-forth shootouts against each other like they always seem to. But in their last matchup, you know, Seattle took that. And then, yes, Carlos Vela is back. But, they're, you know, you mentioned it yourself. They're not going to have Brian Rodriguez. They're not going to have Diego Rossi. They're going to be absent of a lot of those guys that really make this offense tick, um, especially, you know, Golden Boot winner Diego Rossi and Carlos Vela. Yes, he scored two and two, but they were both pretty easy goals if we look at it. Um, so, and we've seen that the depth for LAFC simply can't take on what Seattle can do, especially with Raul Rui Diaz, who will be not only coming back from international play, but he does not have to quarantine because he's already had COVID due to MLS uh, due to the MLS standards. Jordan Morris, who looked very good in that last match. Nicholas Lodero, who bagged himself a goal in the last match. The front three guys that you want to have hot going into your season, especially having a strong backline performance like you just had with the Amar and uh, Javier Arriaga, looks too comfortable. I think Seattle takes it as well. Quick little recaps there. Good job, Sean. I loved having that. But moving from football to football, as we always do, 
boy, did we have a game. The Buffalo Bills, who just took down MVP and the, you know, potential MVP candidate, Russell Wilson, you know, pretty convincingly by a 10-point win, taking on one of the hottest teams in the NFC in the Arizona Cardinals. Boy, did we have a game. Josh Allen so far winning, at least on Fox Sports, the uh, midseason MVP as the Buffalo Bills were now, what, seven, what, seven and two? Seven and three. Because, you know, bye weeks happen. Uh, yeah, Sean, break down this insane game that we had. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I tell you what, the Arizona Cardinals have been must-watch television this NFL season. They're probably the most entertaining team. They had the game of the year against Seattle, as we discussed a few weeks ago. They, I watched them lose to the Miami Dolphins in a 34-31 thriller. And then... Holy fill in the blank. What was that ending? So Cardinals were up 26, 23 after trailing 23 to nine at Buffalo's a back and forth game. Josh Allen leads a great drive, throws a, throws a late touchdown pass to Stephon Dix as he beat Patrick Peterson one-on-one to give the bills the lead with under 30 seconds. I thought to myself, all right, Josh Allen, you did it. You just let a great late game drive. You just put your team at eight and two. Congratulations. Oh, hold, 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 hold the horses here. Uh, Cardinals got to the Buffalo 42, but they were down four, so they need to score a touchdown. I'm like, okay, only – they, 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 their only hope is a Hail Mary. Wait, you're telling me they actually converted the Hail Mary? I, I'll tell you what. When I saw this play, I absolutely lost my mind because of how insane this play was. Five years ago – Aaron Rodgers threw a Hail Mary against the Cardinals in the playoffs, one of the most insane games ever, and Kyler Murray did something very similar. He rolled to his left, twisted across his body, and just absolutely launched a prayer. DeAndre Hopkins was triple covered. Triple. Jordan Poyer, Tredavious White, and Micah Hyde, three legit defenders, were all around him. And all three of them were right around the ball. And DeAndre still caught it. How? I, it's, I, wow. It was one of the most insane Hail Marys I have ever seen. It just goes to show that DeAndre Hopkins is a game changer. And I, I, I just got to bring this up. Imagine trading Bill, imagine trading DeAndre Hopkins for a washed up running back in a second round pick. Yeah, the guy who caught a Hail Mary in triple coverage was traded for a washed up running back in a second round pick. It just goes to show how fortunate the Cardinals were that they were able to, to make this deal. Cardinals are must watch television. The Cardinals are now six and three tied for the division lead with the Los Angeles Rams and the Seattle Seahawks. They will face off on Thursday. Can't wait to see that. Kyler Murray has shown that he is a legit quarterback. I think he's now proven that he's better than Lamar Jackson, plain and simple. He, he's Brent Lamar Jackson. Kyler Murray is a top 10 quarterback in the NFL now, which I can't believe I'm saying that. He is special. He is a special talent. There's a reason he was the number one overall pick. Cardinals are heading in a great direction. Well done, Cardinals. Yeah, you, you mentioned it. It's just the catch itself. Triple coverage. DeAndre Hopkins, that's your guy. That's the one you're looking for. And, uh, you know, you got it in a a matchup against Josh Allen, who, you know, is looking to look a very good Bills team, especially an offense that's come alive for them. 
uh, you know, to eight and two potentially. And, you know, I mentioned it before we started our show here tonight, Sean, the Cardinals have now won four out of their last five against opponents that have not been slouches to say the least. Uh, you know, obviously most notable being the Seattle Seahawks and then, uh, you know, the Buffalo Bills and that. But just the fact of that Kyler Murray just seems to do what a lot of people love crediting, you know, my quarterback, the Seattle Seahawks, Russell Wilson. He just has a will to win. And that is what he's willing to do. He's willing to do what he has to do for this team to get them to get them the win. And that's exactly what he did. Did he have to rely on a Hail Mary? Of course he did. But you said he's better than Lamar Jackson. And what makes him different from Lamar is he can throw and he can throw well. Lamar Jackson, as we you know, will cover later, you look at any ball that he tries to attempt to throw over 20 yards, he's normally going to overshoot you. And just because he's a little overambitious because he's like, what, people aren't as fast as I am? Um, yeah, I love, you just have to say that Kyler Murray is a legit quarterback. And the, you can't take that away from him. He's definitely top 10 this season if he hasn't proven to even make conversation for top five. But he's definitely special. He's got plenty of speed on him, his awareness of the game. And you look at him compared to his offensive lineman, I'm genuinely baffled how he's even able to make some of the plays that he does. Dude, because he's tiny. Kyler, Kyler Murray is a tiny quarterback. Uh, very similar to, you know, a Russell Wilson or a Drew Brees kind of guy who probably have trouble seeing behind their own offensive line. So congratulations to the Arizona Cardinals who are now, you know, like you mentioned, tied for the lead in the NFC West. Um, and uh, kudos to them. Moving on, Sean, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll, we'll wrap up with my team. Let's talk yours after, you know, a big upset over the Baltimore Ravens. The New England Patriots are four and five. But we digress to, anyways, the massive upset that Bill Belichick, Cam Newton, and company had over Baltimore. Sean, take us through your feelings. How are you feeling about this massive upset? Obviously, you know, you talked about Baltimore almost being the bane of your existence. Oh, they have been the bane of my existence. I have I have dealt with the Ravens going to New England four times in the postseason. We won two of them. Arguably, we shouldn't have won either one of those, and then we lost the other two. The Ravens have been the bane of my existence. They, they only lose their team, but guess what? Patriots beat them. Got revenge for the thirty-seven to twenty beatdown last season that ended the Patriots' undefeated season. Now, here are my three takeaways. Number one. It goes to show that Lamar Jackson cannot get it done the elements. He was good statistically. If you look at it statistically, he was solid. And there was a lot of things out of his control. But but guess what? He doesn't have the difference-making factor. I get Lamar Jackson a solid game. I get he lost to Bill Belichick in a monsoon. I get all of that. But at the same time, a leader carries through with his troops when it matters the most. Am I right, Colin? Carries through the troops when it matters the most. Absolutely right. And he didn't do that. He was pouting on the bench and he just seemed lost. He's not a leader on this team. Number two, Patriots just need more talent. We need speed on offense. But if we can get more talent in the coming years, the Patriots are going to be good no matter who the quarterback is. Cam Newton was efficient when he needed to be. And how about Damian Harris? A absolute steal in, in, the, in, the, in the later rounds of the draft. 
replace Sony Michelle, and I don't notice a difference because because Damian Harris has been a very very solid addition for this Patriots team. He's taken the reins from Sony Michelle. Well, he has power and speed, a great combination. And I can't wait to see him continue to be the feature back for the Patriots in the coming years. And my third takeaway is this. And I do have to be a bit realistic, calm down my hype here. Long-term, this wasn't a great win. The Patriots are four and five. They're not going to make the playoffs. There are too many other good teams in the AFC. The Miami Dolphins might be the fourth best team in the NFL. Yes, I, I, I just said it, but just, just, just think about it. It's, it's highly possible. So the Patriots are in no position to make the playoffs. Long-term, this winning this game, it was a good confidence booster, but long-term, it wasn't it wasn't great because their draft position can be lower. So it, it, it so more wins like this are great confidence-wise and personnel-wise, but it puts more on pressure on them to draft better. This upcoming draft is going to be huge to see what talent they can get because they, they don't draft the best. And in this past draft, they haven't drafted the best. So... I want to see how younger players on the team can develop the rest of the season and can they continue to draft well. But right now, this is a big confidence booster and any Patriots fan should be elated that they just beat the Ravens. Elated indeed. First off, let's just, let's give a kudos on a throw to Jacoby Myers for the touchdown. little razzle dazzle there, you know, don't see that coming out of the Belichick playbook too often, but you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get a win and, the Philadelphia Eagles will tell you that to do a Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> I got to take a dig there, Sean. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned that the, the star of this game was easily Damian Harris. You know, didn't score any touchdown, but 22 carries for 121 yards. Just was carried the majority of the workload. Cam Newton only had 17 pass attempts uh, for only 118 yards. So it wasn't like this was a stellar game by any means for Cam Newton. But the, the Patriots, his offense got the job done when it needed and then the defense stepped up big time too but you know you guys mentioned we the Lamar Jackson received so much hype coming into the you know coming this season after having the season that he did last year but he's just yes he can be a difference maker on his feet but when it comes to his arm a lot more teams are way more comfortable playing in maybe a man or even a a few man zone coverage but just because they, they have that confidence of, look, if he's going to take off, we're, we have the ability to wrap you up now because we know what you're going to do. The, this John Harbaugh offense is not as creative as it was. We're obviously seeing the, we're, we're seeing the lack of that now just because teams are putting some spies or even two spies now on Lamar Jackson. They're able to shoot the gaps when necessary. They're calling blitz when necessary. And we're just seeing that he, he doesn't have the intelligence to pull off the reads that he needs to make. So I think ultimately – Wow, this was a solid win. I think just Lamar Jackson just does not have the tools that he personally needs to get the job done uh, for being such a tall running back in a quarterback position. So moving on to my team, uh, Sean, let's, let's get your reactions before I just, you know, just weep a little bit here. Uh, we lost to the Rams 23, 23 to 16. Sean, go ahead. Okay, well, I'll keep this brief because I just want to hear you go off, but here are my two takeaways. Number one, whoo, the Rams are legit on defense. Aaron, they have the best corner in the in defensive tackle in the NFL. I have said for the last few years that Jalen Ramsey is the best corner in the game. Not Stephon Gilmore, which I don't know why anyone would think that. He's not very good, and I think the Patriots should trade him. But Jalen Ramsey, he held DK Metcalf to under 40 yards receiving. 
DK Metcalf was basically a non-factor in this game. How about Darius Williams? He stretched out and deflected a touchdown away from Tyler Lockett. He is a very good young corner. Taylor Rapp is a good young safety. How about Leonard Floyd, a Chicago Bears cast-off with multiple fumble recoveries and three sacks? Leonard Floyd was absolutely incredible for the LA Rams. The Rams are very, very good all around. They're a very dangerous team. They can run the ball better than they than they did last year. Uh, they're very deep at wide receiver. Their offensive line's a little bit better, although still a little shaky. The Rams are a very good team, plain and simple, and they're going to make the playoffs, and they're a very dangerous out for any team. You know, I, I would love to see the Rams play the Saints again in the playoffs, but... Let's talk about Seattle. That's my other takeaway. Oh boy. I, I was watching, I was watching Colin Cowherd and he presented a question that I think sums it up perfectly. Would the Seattle Seahawks win a single game without Russell Wilson? No. I I th- I, I thought about it while preparing for this podcast. I, I I I thought long and hard about it. I don't think they would. They can't run the ball. Their offensive line is mediocre. They get to the Pass the passer every once in a while, but other than that, they get no pass rush. Jamal Adams has been an absolute flop of a trade. The secondary doesn't make any plays. Bobby Wagner has to do everything by himself, and he can't because that's not how the NFL works. I truly think they'd be the worst team in the NFL, even worse than the Jets without Russell Wilson. Because here's the thing about the Jets. The Jets have a couple good receivers, especially Jamison Crowder. They, they have that, at least. The, the Jets also have a okay front seven. An okay front seven. I can't even say that about Seattle. I, the, Jet, the, the Seahawks and Jets would have a battle if Russell Wilson wasn't playing. Oh, wait, they do play later this year, so fingers crossed that that doesn't happen because that'd be the worst NFL game. And it... It just boggles my mind. What happened to this organization? What happened to developing talent? What happened to drafting well? When was the last time Seattle drafted well? 2013? I, I truly think that's, that, that's the right answer there. Uh, praise the gods for Seattle fans as you have Russell Wilson because I have a bad feeling when his play starts to decline, which it has been somewhat this season and going forward. Uh, it's not going to be pretty, man. It's not going to be pretty. Yeah, I'm just – I know you want me to go off the same way I did when, you know, we lost to the Cardinals or, you know, even the Bills. But I, I just can't. Just because simply to – put, to put it simply, Sean, this team is now one-dimensional because there is no running game. And, yes, I, I think that you brought up a very good point, especially Colin Cowherd, who I really enjoy listening to. Uh, this team probably wouldn't win a whole lot against – you know, against really anyone uh, without Russell Wilson, because, you know, we, I mentioned it earlier, he has that drive to win, but now you are truly putting the entire offense on him. Yes. You mentioned, you know, Jalen Ramsey held DK Metcalf to, you know, very little, but it it also seemed like that chemistry was super off because DK Metcalf, when it comes to height and everything, you know, is significantly larger than Jalen Ramsey. And he can, probably outrun him too. I would, I would have liked to see maybe one of those one-on-one shots taken a little bit more frequently. Tyler Lockett was also shut down as well because the Rams do have a legitimate defense. 
Um, but without any running game, guess what? You can't play a play action, which Seattle actually likes to use very frequently. Um, you know, DJ Dallas is not a Carlos Hyde, is not a Chris Carson. Um, the, not even, obviously, a Marshawn Lynch, who we obviously look at how that went years ago. Uh, the offensive line has been complete garbage for the last three to four. I wouldn't say three to four, like the last six, seven, eight years has just been garbage. Um, the defense obviously is no longer the the legion of boom that we were accustomed to. There's no Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman, uh, Cam Chancellor. That's all gone. Uh, I saw a meme that it said it went from the legion of boom to the region of room. Uh, just so much, so much available space for wide receivers and. Look at what Jared Goff was able to do. He was, and you know, we gave Jared Goff a lot of crap because he's not the most accurate passer. He's able to pick apart a Seattle secondary who is now having the worst, like worst in, in NFL history start to their what first nine games of a season. And I don't see that trending down anytime soon. Um, it's 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 sad to see what used to be a quality organization who prided itself on you know, drafting well. And granted, you know, we had to get to a point where we had to pay Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner, KJ Wright, guys like that. But you can't find any talent anymore, really. Yes, I know you got the steal of the draft in DK Metcalf two seasons ago, but even still, you got you have to get more help here. You got to get more. You got to get someone who can put more pressure on the quarterback. Yes, I know you had seven sacks against Buffalo. You still lost by 10. You still lost by a whole touchdown against the Rams. Uh, and now we got, you know, like I said, the hottest, one of the hottest teams in the NFC coming up on Thursday on short rest. I could see Arizona stealing that game too. Only this time it will be a little bit more convincing uh, with no healthy running game with Russell Wilson, who has now had what, 10 turnovers now. And he's, on, he's trending now from being MVP to having one of his worst seasons when it comes to touchdown interception ratio. Just unfortunate to see, because now, now obviously this is going to look bad on Russell Wilson, but he doesn't have any help anymore. He doesn't have a running game that he can rely on. So hopefully Seattle can turn things around. Um, but granted, they have, we'll say, an easier stretch of games coming up as they've got, you know, the Jets and Washington and the New York Giants. But even still, we can't count out any team because teams that we counted out before ended up having nail biters on earlier this season. Yeah, it, the, the Seahawks are definitely trending downward. And I'm, I'm just really hoping to see the Seahawks actually – gives give Russ some help because as a neutral fan I I just want to I just don't want to I just like to see Russ perform well and seeing him given no help is it's a bit disheartening to see even from a neutral perspective yeah the biggest thing you ultimately don't want to see is him getting banged up as much as him he does you don't want to see him get injured because no Russell Wilson and having Geno Smith fill in that role no thanks uh yeah so Fingers crossed, Seattle can turn things around. That's going to do it for us here on Blinded by Sports. Sean, any last-minute notes before we take off? Be, be sure to check out Colin Fuchs' preview of the MLS playoffs. He will have coverage for the site throughout the playoffs. This, 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 is, this is his sanctuary. Johnny Crane had his for MLB and NHL. Joseph Aducci had his for NBA. And now it is Colin's turn with the MLS playoffs. Be sure to check that out. Round one will come up before the playing game, so... Be sure to be sure to check that out and go loons. Yep, go Sounders indeed. I'm glad glad to hear you say that, Sean. Uh, <laughs> yeah, please, like I said, look out for my article coming up here within the next couple of days. Uh, yeah, for Sean Clark and myself, I've been Colin Fuchs. Check us out on thecandidclark.com. 
and on Spotify as well. We will catch you next Tuesday. It is a wonderful time of year. December football is approaching. Playoff picture starting to heat up. And we just had the play of the year in the NFL. Great stuff. Welcome to Ahead of the Count on the Candy Clark Podcast. I am your host, the Candy Clark himself, Sean Clark. I am joined by Johnny Crane. Johnny, how are we doing this Corpus on a Wednesday, Wednesday morning. Well, we're doing good. At the time this was recorded, we just did another show previous before this that was over an hour long. So I am right in the sports talk mood. I'm in my prime, as they say in the sports world. So, hey, we got more stuff to talk about, more stuff to repeat. So let's go on. Let's go. Yes. Be sure to check out the Rich Report podcast is now both me and Johnny Crane are now co-hosts on that so be sure to check that out. Also be sure to check out the canclark.com with content both from both of us weekly. Johnny Crane does a great job with the surprise of the weeks every week. So be sure to check that out. Let's, let's get into this. All right. So NBA is not a sport we talk about very often on this podcast, but we are today because when we're recording this is the morning before the NBA draft, but we have a trade we want to discuss about now. I, right now, am in Arizona. Johnny, unfortunately, is not here in Arizona, but he was here in Arizona for four years. The The NBA team in Arizona, the Phoenix Suns, have made a big trade acquiring veteran point guard Chris Paul from the Oklahoma City Thunder for draft picks. This Phoenix Suns went 9-0 in the regular season bubble last year, but they fell short of the playoffs. Johnny, what do you think of this trade? Well, when you start, when you look at this trade from the Phoenix Suns perspective, the Phoenix Suns get what they have been lacking. When you look at the Suns roster last season, they had a lot of shooting, but they didn't have that much veteran and tangible experience and not that much defending as well. They could shoot the ball, but they really couldn't defend it. And in the Western Conference, with all the three-point shooters that there are, you have to defend the perimeter and you have to defend the inside and the free throw line. Chris Paul on the Phoenix Suns not only gives them a better defensive weapon, but also gives them that intangible factor of that veteran that has not only been there on competing teams, but has also been there on rebuilding teams. And while the Phoenix Suns at this stage of their rebuild really isn't a rebuild at this point, they're practically ready to compete and they almost got in the playoffs in the bubble this past season. This weapon for the Phoenix Suns solidifies Devin Booker as not purely a shooter, but Devin Booker can emphasize more on the shooting aspect. And Chris Paul can be more of the captain of the offense that keeps the offense running and going and feeding Devin Booker with those shots. So when you look at the Phoenix Suns from this trade perspective, they have a lot of youth, they have a lot of shooting, and now they added a veteran piece that can also do stuff on offense but also add in some veteran qualities and defensive qualities as well. So a really good trade for the Phoenix Suns, and it is definitely something that they need if they want to compete with the Los Angeles Lakers of the world, the Clippers of the world, the Golden State Warriors if they get healthy, so on and so forth. When you look at this from a Thunder perspective, well, they're practically doing what the Philadelphia 76ers did, but not with the tanking aspect tapped onto that. They're stocking up on draft picks. They have a ton of draft picks over the next several drafts, and that's not even looking at the drafts beyond 2025. And they're stacking up on quantity to get a lot of quality. And when you get a lot of quality, 
in a Western Conference where you need a lot of quality in your lineup and on your bench, while the Oklahoma City Thunder, if they hit on some of these picks, they're definitely going to be back in the thick of things very, very soon. And then without even looking at the draft picks, the players that they got, such as Kelly Oubre, they get a lot of high upside youthful players that can still be molded into something that Oklahoma City wants them to do for their team to either compete or to trade to get more picks later on. So overall, a great trade for the Thunder as well. I think this is a win-win for both sides. So we'll see how it plays out once the season starts. But as of right now, from what we've seen on paper, it looks like a really good trade for both. It does. The Oklahoma City Thunder were in the playoffs last season. They did lose to the Houston Rockets in the first round in seven games. But the Thunder show that they can perform with the players that they have. Yes, Chris Paul and Dennis Schroeder now gone because Dennis Schroeder is now on the L.A. Lakers, which low-key is a very underrated pickup for the Lakers. There are developing players on the Thunder that are, that already have shown that they can be a vital piece going forward. Shai Gilgis Alexander is the point guard of the future. There's a reason why they, they felt comfortable shipping out Chris Paul because they know they're in good hands with Shy in the future. While Shy did make a lot of mistakes in the playoffs, he, he does have a lot of potential and he's already proven to be a pretty good point guard in this league. Uh, Lou Dort, who is a defensive specialist, had some good offensive production in the playoffs. And if he can continue to build that offensive production, he can be good. Steven Adams has been a legit center in the NBA for years. And now you add Kelly Oubre, who I who is, has a lot of upside in the wing, and he he already shown with Phoenix that he can be a good quality scoring wing in this league. So that's another good option there. The Thunder are going to be a French playoff team, and they have a lot of draft picks. That is that is a very terrifying prospect for for the for the upcoming future, and. It's similar, to, it's similar to Miami. Miami is going to have a top five draft pick because the Houston Texans are stupid. The Dolphins are going to have a top five pick and they're, and they're already a legit playoff team. So when you have draft capital and you're already a solid team, that's really, really good. That's one of the best spots you can be in as a franchise. And I cannot wait to see what the Oklahoma City Thunder do going forward. As far as the Suns go, Chris Paul is a is a great facilitator. He's a top 10 point guard of all time. I know he's never reached the conference finals in his career, but he's still a top 10 all-time point guard. He's a great facilitator. And he's basically Ricky Rubio, but a lot better. That's basically what Chris Paul is. Ricky Rubio was a floor general, and Chris Paul is just way better at it. So the Suns are going to take a step forward, and, and Mikael Bridges should take the role of Kelly Oubre. I think the Suns are going to make the playoffs, and whoever plays them in the playoffs, whether it be the Clippers, the Lakers, or even the Denver Nuggets, should be should keep an eye out for this team because they're going to be pretty good. It would not surprise me if the Suns end up in the 4-5 or five game in the Western Conference, which I think is very realistic at this point. Moving on from basketball to soccer. I know soccer is... Is is more emphasized on our previous on Candy Clark podcast previous segment blinded by sports, but hey, we still talk soccer on ahead of the count as well. The MLS playoffs start this weekend. Oh yeah, me and Johnny Crane are about to butt heads this weekend because our favorite MLS teams, mine, Minnesota United, is going to play Johnny's favorite club, the Colorado Rapids. Now, before we get to that, we're what we're going to do is we're just gonna we're just we're just gonna do like we did with. Bl- 
like I did with Colin Fuchs and Winning West Sports is, is is go through each matchup and just and just pick a winner and give a brief description as to why. So we have two playoff games, playing games in the Eastern Conference due to the fact that the Eastern Conference has two more teams. So they want to have playing games to determine who the seven and eight seeds are. First, we have to battle the expansions. Nashville SC versus Inter-Miami. Inter-Miami has gone on a charge at the end of the season, while Nashville has been good all around the season. Johnny, who do you got winning that match? When you look at both expansion franchises, they've both had some They've had some pretty solid success as an expansion franchise. However, if I'm going to pick one over the other, if you're going to win and you're going to go deep in any postseason, you have to have good defense and good goalkeeping. I know you're not too high on goalkeeping like I am, but when you compare Inter-Miami's goals conceded to Nashville's, Nashville easily takes the cake. I think they're more well-rounded on the defensive and offensive side. I'll take Nashville. Walker Zimmerman is one of, if not the best center backs in the entire MLS. I think that that he helps keep into Miami off the scoreboard, and I think he get he, he gets a header in off the corner to give Nashville a one 0 win. Now, how about the other one? Arsenal legend Thierry Henry, the best player in Arsenal history, is managing Montreal Impact as they take on Bruce Arena. Yes, the same manager who lost to Trinidad Tobago. On, on the U.S. men's national team that knocked them out of the World Cup. These two managers are squaring off Montreal Impact versus New England Revolution. Who do you got? It's kind of a tough one. It's kind of the coin flip. You know, when you see these play-in matchups, they kind of remind me of those play-in matchups in March Madness. They can kind of go either way. I know you like Arsenal. I know you have the history with Montreal Impact. They could, you know what? I'm going to go with Montreal. I just have that feeling. I'll just go with that one. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Montreal Impact has conceded the, the most goals in the Eastern Conference, and I think that New England is going to take advantage of a weak Montreal backline, and they will advance in the postseason. So this means that in the Eastern Conference, that the New England Revolution are going to play the Philadelphia Union, so New England versus Philadelphia. Gee, where have we seen this before? And the Nashville SC will take on Toronto FC. Johnny, do both Philadelphia and Toronto get it done against the, the two Eastern Conference plans? They very well easily should. When you look at the Eastern Conference and you compare it to the Western Conference, Philadelphia Union and Toronto FC not only are the best clubs in the Eastern Conference, they're probably the best clubs in all of MLS. Eastern Conference to me this year was a lot, a little bit deeper and there was a lot more good parity as opposed to the Western Conference had, which had less parity in my opinion. They both score a lot of goals. They both have really great goaltending. Philadelphia Union is undefeated at home. So I'm going to take the Philadelphia Union and Toronto FC to beat both of those clubs. I agree as well. All right, Johnny, you wrote about this club, the Columbus Crew. You wrote about them in your surprise of the week. You should check that out. They take on the New York Red Bulls. Do you see the Columbus crew continuing their great season or do the Red Bulls shock the crew? I know Columbus crew kind of went on a little bit of an inconsistent stretch at the end, I'm pretty sure. But at home, they are still very, very good and they still have excellent goaltending and they have just enough offense 
more so than last year to supplement that good goaltending and such. I think Columbus does pull this out. Now, in the later rounds, that might be a little bit of a problem. But as of this matchup, I'll take the Columbus crew as well. Over. Tyler Adams is gone. Bradley Wright Phillips is gone. Uh, Kaku is gone. A lot of legit New York Red Bull players have left the club in the last few years. They just aren't the same Red Bulls team that was at the top of the Eastern Conference. Tom, if Tom Barlow is your, your go-to scorer, that's a problem. No offense to Tom Barlow, but the, the, the Red Bulls are just not what they used to be. I think the Columbus takes it 1-0 in the defensive slugfest, and I think Jazzy Zardes does get the late goal. All right. Out of all the MLS first-round matchups, this is the one that I think I know who's going to win, but I'm not fully confident on this, and that is NYC FC taking on Orlando SC, City SC. Johnny, who do you have winning this very intriguing matchup? NYC FC I really liked a lot last season. They had really they're kind of they were kind of in the same boat as Columbus Crew is in this year. They had really good defending, really good goaltending last season. This season has been a little bit of a different story. Orlando's been that up and coming big rising power in the Eastern Conference. It's a kind of a coin flip matchup too. It can kind of go either way. Four and five seed, that's usually what happens. I think when you look at when you look at the goals four and the goals conceded, they're practically identical. Orlando City has scored 40 goals. NYCFC has scored 37. They've both conceded 25. So it's really a coin flip. I think Orlando City, I've watched them several times. I think that they move the ball a little bit better and they're a little more fluid and aggressive on their offensive style. And maybe one long pass is all it takes. And I think that might be the difference in that game. I'm going to go with the rising power in Orlando City. I completely agree. Chris Miller has been an absolute stud for Orlando City this last part of the season. And as Nani displayed in the MLS's back tournament, he can be a legit scoring option and make special plays. He had an insane long shot to help eliminate Minnesota United in the MLS's back tournament semifinal. I think Orlando takes this, but I can't count out Maxi Morales, who is one of the best playmakers in the MLS. I, this is going to be close, but I just think Orlando has a little more weapons. All right, moving on to the Western Conference. Sporting KC has shocked everyone and are the top seed in the West. Do they take care of business against the Earthquakes? Earthquakes are a very intriguing team. Like I mentioned earlier, the Western Conference has a lot more parity top to bottom in the playoff field as opposed to the Eastern Conference, but it's a lot weaker parity. As in, a lot of these teams, they could go far or they could get knocked out in the first round. It's kind of a coin flip. When you look at the Eastern Conference, there's a lot more super team power in the Philadelphia Union and Toronto FC. I think in regard to that, I know you don't like Sporting KC. I think they're a very technical team. It can be kind of a Painful thing to watch at times, watching them. But even though the Quakes have been intriguing to watch, I think I'm going to take KC to take the cake in this game. Let's flash back to 2018. LAFC in their first ever playoff, they took on Real Salt Lake. And Real Salt Lake went in there and won 5-3 to three over LAFC. To me, Real, Real Salt Lake was the more technical team and LAFC was the more offensive team, and LAFC lost. However, with the way soccer is continuing to evolve, 
more more explosive teams are winning now. Just look at the Premier League, where you're where you're just seeing you're just seeing insane shootouts left and right. So offenses like in the NFL have gotten increasingly better over the last several years in all sports, baseball as well, as you can attest, Mr. Crane. So because of that, the game has changed a little bit. And I think the Earthquakes pull off the shocker. And I'm not just saying that because Sporting KC is the rival of my favorite club. Sporting KC, I have seen them time and time again choke in the playoffs like they did two years ago against the Timbers. Chris Wondolowski can get hot. And because this is only a one-match format, a lot can happen. And I truly believe that the San Jose Earthquakes, they have enough dynamic on the attack to be able to knock off a technical Sporting KC who tends to get a little too aggressive. I just got this gut feeling that it's going to be 1-1 late and Sporting KC is going to commit a foul on Wondolowski in the penalty box and Wondolowski is going to to kick home the penalty and San Jose pulls off the shocking upset 2-1. Okay, I think I know where this is going to go. All right. To to, to say the Rapids are going to beat Minnesota. All right, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Well, I can't just flat out say that. Colorado Rapids have been practically the Orlando City of the Western Conference, a very young team, an up-and-coming team, and a very balanced team. Over 10 players have scored at least one goal this year. Jonathan Lewis and Cole Bassett lead the way with five goals apiece, followed by Andre Shinyashiki with four. I think the balance, the speed, the youth, I think it plays into their favor. They pretty much are playing with house money. A lot of teams and a lot of people and fans really didn't see the Rapids making the playoffs this year. They were kind of in the same boat as the Arizona Cardinals that we'll talk about in a bit, maybe another year or so in the rebuild, and then they'll start to compete. But COVID, pandemic aside, they are in the playoffs. And I think given the depth and balance and youth and just free-flowing style they can play with, again, with playing with house money. I think they can give Minnesota a good run for their money and eventually overtake Minnesota to win. Is that the answer you want? That's the answer I was expecting. Now, look, Colin Fuchs also picked Colorado. I'm sorry. I I, I can't agree. Now, I get get the points, everything you mentioned. The fact that, that Colorado has played the fewest matches of any club in the MLS, which means they're the freshest. They're also very young and dynamic. I get all that. And I, I still think Minnesota's going to win, though. And I promise that is not my bias speaking. When I look at Minnesota, they have playmakers at the midfield. They also are very good in the back line. Dane Sinclair has stepped up in the absence of Tyler Miller, who suffered an injury in the MLS's back tournament. Osvaldo Alonso has been one of the best social defensive midfielders He's basically the MLS Nagola Conte is the best way I can sum it up. He is, he's very aggressive. He is very defensive minded and is phenomenal back there. Igo Parra has won two of the last four MLS defenders of the year. He is an absolute stud in the backfield. You have Romeo Mentonair as, as a very dependable right back. Robin Lode with nine goals this season at the midfield. I think that, and I think that what Lode ends up doing is he will score a goal and he'll set up Luis Almarela for the winning goal. And I think Minnesota barely takes it. So long as, so long as Ethan Finley doesn't ruin every single chance that Minnesota has, like he did last year against the LA Galaxy. I have the videos to prove that too. I will gladly watch them again. And I'd like for it to happen again too. But anyway, 
Keep it going, Sean. Yes, last year, Johnny Crane watched me and Cameron Richardson's favorite club, the LA Galaxy, scrub from the finals, and Ethan Finley was absolutely terrible. Ethan, look, if you have a great performance and help Minnesota beat Colorado, I'll forgive you for what you did last year. But you, you got to show up here, man, because I do not want to see that playoff performance again because, ooh, that was rough. All right, but let's close with this. Portland plays FC Dallas and Seattle plays LAFC. LAFC is not the juggernaut they were last season. They're very banged up and shorthanded as Diego Rossi's not going to play. Portland, Seattle is the greatest robber in the MLS. Plain and simple. Anyone who knows the MLS knows that Portland and Seattle is the greatest robber in the MLS. Are, are they going to are they going to take care of Bins and face each other in the next round? Which, by the way, since since John Evil and Regent got in the MLS. Watch the highlights of 2018 playoffs, Portland versus Seattle, when you get the chance. Both me and Cameron agree that that was one of the best soccer matches we have ever seen, the second of the two matches. Are we going to see a rematch of that from 2018? Are both Portland and Seattle going to get it done? I think Portland should easily be able to get it done. I think LAFC, if they had Rossi, could have given Seattle a run for their money, but given the fact that Rossi is not going to play. Rossi had a really good year, shortened season aside. He had 14 goals and only 19 games started, as opposed to he had 16 and over 30 games started last year. So he was kind of LAFC's go-to scoring option this year that also has Carlos Vela. So I think without Rossi, a lot of their firepower is taken away. Seattle, they've had some injury issues. They've had some inconsistencies. Again, going back to the Western Conference parity. But I think with their scores intact, and given the fact that LAFC is without their primary score, I think Seattle should also be able to get it done. I completely agree as well. If Portland Seattle play each other again, that is going to be a must-watch for any for any soccer fan. That that would be just truly phenomenal. I hope I hope it is just as good as as the deciding match two years ago in the greatest MLS game I have seen so far. All right, let's move from football to football. All right, oh my gosh. We had the moment of the season in the NFL where Kyler Murray rolled out to his left and out of a la Aaron Rodgers five years ago against the Cardinals, chucked a prayer across his body and DeAndre Hopkins triple covered by Tredavious White, Micah Hyde, and Jordan Poyer, three legit defenders and all pros and pro bowlers made up, went, made the catch and gave the Arizona Cardinals the 32-30 win over the, the, the previously 7-2 Buffalo Bills. Wow. I, the whole country lost their minds when that happened. I lost my mind. You probably lost your mind too. After, after this podcast is recorded, uh, you will have your surprise of the week. Talking about the Arizona Cardinals, check that out. But Johnny, tell us what you thought of this. The, the, the moment of the year, Cardinals are now 6-3. What did you think about this? I think this was not only the moment of the year, this was the statement of the year. When you look at the Arizona Cardinals coming into the season, sophomore campaign for Kyla Mori and head coach Cliff Kingsbury, some people thought there needed to be a little more development on the offensive and defensive side, maybe another rebuild slash retool year. And then next season it go, they go full guns a blazing for competing. But with this 
game, and more importantly, what Hopkins brings and why they brought him in in the offseason, they're ready to compete now. And when you look at the NFC playoff picture, there's a lot of parity, again, kind of like the Western Conference in MLS. That's, this kind of game for the Cardinals is significant because this tells everybody and this tells the NFC that the Cardinals are ready to compete now. Kyler Murray, mobile, can have the arm and have the arm strength to make those kind of plays down the field and more importantly has the clutchness to make that play down the field. He kind of resembles Lamar Jackson if Lamar Jackson had that clutch factor, but as we've seen so far in Lamar Jackson's career, he hasn't had that clutch factor yet, even though he has all those other talents. Kyler Murray has already unlocked that talent and that clutchness, and throwing to a go-to wide receiver, top three wide receiver threat in Hopkins only lengthens and shows how scary Arizona's offense can be in a potential playoff scenario. And with that offense, with that college offense mindset under Kingsbury, that could give any opposing defense in the NFC a good run for their money. And more importantly, not saying the Arizona Cardinals are going to go to the Super Bowl, but if their aspirations are for the Super Bowl, they need that down-the-field threat target in Hopkins and that multidimensional talent in Murray to go up against the Patrick Mahomeses of the world, the potential Tua Tagovailoa's of the world should they eventually get there. Those are the kind of players you're going to face. Those are the kind of teams you're going to have to beat if you want to go all the way. And as we saw against the Buffalo Bills, the Cardinals have the potential to do that in primetime games. You mentioned their Super aspirations, and I think they're very valid considering that the NFC is a lot weaker this season than it was a year ago. A year ago, there was a lot of good teams, but the San Francisco 49ers were a juggernaut. They were not going to be denied the NFC championship last year. But this year is very wide open. You have the Packers, who are very meh, like they were last year, relatively speaking. The Saints, while they're still good, they have they're not – they're not the Saints of 2018 that just dominated everybody for most of the season. NFC East, uh, do I even have to go into that? And the, the, the rest of the NFC West, which Rams are good. So I'm excited to see. Remember, the Cardinals have not played the Rams yet. So I'm very intrigued to see how those two matches go, considering that the Rams have a very good defense. And the Seahawks' defense is, absolute, is historically awful. And also the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they're good, but they, they lack a consistent identity. So the Arizona Cardinals do have Super Bowl aspirations. And the biggest reason why they do have Super Bowl aspirations is because, all right, look, I sometimes nail how good quarterbacks are going to be in drafts. I sometimes, I sometimes am wrong, but let's be real. None, none of us are 100% accurate on how good NFL quarterbacks can be. None of us. No one thought Patrick Mahomes would be an MVP and Super Bowl MVP in his first two years in the league. Like, yeah, I have to say this is like, I knew exactly what kind of quarterback Jared Goff was going to be. He was going to be like Phillip Rivers, put up a lot of stats, but not quite a championship winning quarterback. I got that right. What I've gotten wrong is I didn't think Justin Herbert would be that very good. And I've been completely, that, that, that has been my biggest whiff. Okay. I, I'll admit it. I whiffed on that. I whiffed. I, I, I will admit it. Kyler Murray, here's what, here's what I said about Kyler Murray. I said he can be a very good quarterback in this league, but the problem is I don't know if he can stay healthy. I worried that he was going to be like RG3, where very good early, but then gets injured. I am half right. 
He has been healthy, and he has been a very good quarterback. And the reason I'm not worried about Kyler Murray getting injured is because Kyler Murray, with his baseball experience, knows how to avoid hits. He's very shifty. He's very elusive. And unlike RG3, he, he knows how to slide. RG3 should have taken practice, should have taken lessons from the Washington Nationals on how to slide because he didn't know what to, what to, how to slide. But Kyler Murray does ex- exceptionally well. He knows how to avoid contact. And that's why I'm not worried about the health, long-term health of Kyler Murray. But also, on the, on the Hale Murray, yes, yes, the, that, that, that's the official name of, of it, the Hale Murray. Kyler Murray chucked the ball 50 yards across his body, which not many quarterbacks can do that. Not many quarterbacks can wall to the pocket and just chuck it 50 yards. I don't even fully know if Justin Herbert can do that. He does have great arm talent, but, but his game is more a pocket. It is, is, is more from the pocket. So I don't even know if Justin Herbert or Joe Burrow can make a throw like that. Kyler Murray is a special talent. And the fact that he's been completely healthy – shows that the Arizona Cardinals have found their franchise quarterback. He's the best quarterback they've had. Carson Palmer was great, don't get me wrong, but he had Bruce Arians and a loaded system and a good defense. He's the best quarterback they've had since Kurt Warner, which was, as someone who who had both of the both of my parents, their favorite all-time player was Kurt Warner, and that was an exciting Cardinals offense. This is reminding Arizona Cardinals and Kurt Warner fans of that offense just with a little more elusivity because Kurt Warner was the slowest quarterback I've ever seen. So the Cardinals, their future is insanely bright. They got DeAndre Hopkins, and I cannot wait to see what they do this postseason, assuming that they get there. Tomorrow night they play the Seahawks. I hope it's just as good as it was the first time because my oh my, that that first game was incredible. So let's transition to the Buffalo Bills a little bit. So the AFC playoff picture. <laughs> Ooh, this AFC playoff picture looks insane. And that's not a word I, I use lightly. We have six teams in the AFC that are six and three. Six. And the three teams in the playoffs that aren't six and three are seven and three, and that's the Bills. The eight and one Kansas City Chiefs and the 9-0 Pittsburgh Steelers. We have nine legit teams in the AFC here that, 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 that either are good playoff teams or can make the playoffs. So, Johnny, what do you make of this AFC playoff picture? Who, who do you think are the two teams that will be outside looking in in the current seven-game format? And, and, and what do you see as far as how teams stack up against one another? Well, first off, when you compare the AFC to the NFC, like you said, it's leaps and bounds way better than anything the NFC can muster together. Nine teams, and even when you're you're not even looking at those really good playoff contender kind of teams, even the spoiler kind of teams and the rebuilding teams are way better. Justin Herbert and the Chargers, yep, their record's not that good. That's true. But they can still score a lot of points. They have a lot of weapons. The Cincinnati Bengals, still a year away. They have Joe Burrow. He's been pretty good. They can score a lot of points. The list goes on and on. Even the spoiler teams, you really don't want to play in December. The AFC is that deep. But on that note, when you look at the playoff teams, I think when you look at the likes of the Cleveland Browns and the Tennessee Titans, I think they are kind of at a disadvantage when you compare 
those teams to the rest of the contending teams. Yes, the Tennessee Titans have Derrick Henry. Yes, Ryan Tannehill has looked pretty solid, but their secondary has been pretty questionable. They don't get a lot of takeaways. They're not that aggressive. Offensive line, again, is okay. They can control the clock, but once you're going up against the likes of Patrick Mahomes and Tua Tagovailoa eventually, oh, those kind of quarterbacks that can chuck the ball down the field a long ways, if your secondary gets blown, and they score a lot of points, you're having to play catch-up, and you can't really manage the clock like you would otherwise. Tennessee Titans, Cleveland Browns, poorest secondaries, and I think the Cleveland Browns might be even at even more of a disadvantage considering the fact that the case is still out on Baker Mayfield, and he's without one of his weapons in Odell Beckham Jr. Now, I get it. The chemistry between Odell Beckham Jr. and Baker Mayfield might not have been the greatest, but without Odell Beckham Jr., the coverage is really going to be more so on mitigating and holding on to Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt and Jarvis Landry. More coverage is going to be put on them. More emphasis is going to be put on them because Odell Beckham Jr. is not on the field. So in that regard, I think those two teams are going to be at a disadvantage. When you look at the rest of the teams, it's pretty much a free-for-all, like the Wild West. When you look at Tua Tagovailoa of the Miami Dolphins, Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the list goes on. All those teams have really good qualities, but can they stack up against the Kansas City Chiefs? Yes, I know the Kansas City Chiefs currently do not possess the only buy. The Pittsburgh Steelers do. But what the Kansas City Chiefs have, oh, well, someone by the name of Patrick Mahomes who can literally change a play over the course of one play one drive one throw and then when you add the fact that they have Clyde Edwards Hilaire at running back and now Le'Veon Bell they added another point of emphasis on that offense for Andy Reid to mess with so can the offenses go up against that offense can other offenses win shootouts against the Chiefs that's going to be the x factor of the AFC playoff picture and that will be the x factor especially when you look at the Pittsburgh Steelers Yes, their defense is really good, really aggressive, but can Big Ben make those big throws that he did five, six years ago to potentially offset any Patrick Mahomes throw down the field for 65 yards and a touchdown? That'll be the key for any team and especially for the Steelers. I did write my week 10 NFL takeaways, so I do cover several of these points in that article, but I think the Tennessee Titans are missing the playoffs. Their, their secondary is porous. Their offensive line is getting more and more injured. Adam Humphreys has been out. He's their slot guy, so they don't have an over-the-middle threat. You you have a pass rush that just cannot really get to the quarterback to some bases. I don't know why they traded Jarrell Casey for a seventh-round pick this offseason. They could have really used him right now. The Titans basically have Ryan Tannehill, Derrick Henry, and A.J. Brown. And, and I'll throw in John New Smith as well. They basically have those players just to carry the team. And with a, with a porous defense, that's not a good recipe in the NFL. Because, you know, football, there's 22 guys on the field, not four. So, I and with the Titans, they only have two home games left this season. We're in mid-November, and they only have two weeks left in the season. So, I think the Titans are in royal trouble. I don't think – I think they'll be one of the two teams that are also looking at it. And as far as the other one, I think it's highly possible it could be the Ravens. Now, I'm not just saying that because I don't like them. But Lamar Jackson has shown that he can't consistently pass the ball. And teams are starting to figure out how to stop him. Heck, the Patriots stopped him. Now, I get it was conditions. I get that. But at the same time, though, 
where was this against Pittsburgh when you when the Ravens vastly outplayed them? I I don't I don't understand how how the Ravens can possibly continue to keep this up without a legit passing game. Lamar Jackson's success passing the ball last season because teams were not expecting them to pass the ball up, and now the teams had a whole off season to figure him out. They're just like, okay, so this is how we're going to stop him. We're going to we're going to take away the passing lanes and we're going to have at least one or two spies on Lamar Jackson to prevent him from having huge gains. So the Ravens have, be, have become predictable. And the Ravens do play the Titans and Steelers in the next few games, and it's not guaranteed they win either or both, or they could lose both of those games. Now, I do think they beat the Titans, but I think they do lose to the Steelers again. I think the Steelers will play much better than they did in their previous matchup. And the reason why I think the Browns might get in over the Ravens, which is a bit shaky. I'm just, I'm just guessing for the most part. Nick Chubb is back for the Browns, and their offense looks completely different. You wrote about the rush, their Browns rushing attack in one of your surprise of the weeks. Basically, your first NFL surprise of the week, think about it, because all the way back in week two. Yeah, Nick Chubb is the difference maker for the Browns offense. If he and Kareem Hunt can stay healthy, they're going to be a tough out for any team going forward. And the and I think the Browns will find success. I success. I think that both the Bills and Dolphins make the playoffs. I think the Dolphins are a legit playoff team. I think they're one of the best teams in the AFC. They have a very good defense. They have a very good special teams. Tua doesn't make mistakes. And how about Savon Ahmed? 85 rushing yards in a touchdown against the Chargers. I know it was the Chargers, but that was the, the Dolphins' second best rushing performance this season. That 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 bolds really well. For the Miami Dolphins going forward, I think the Bills make the playoffs. I think the Las Vegas Raiders make the playoffs. They're very dynamic on offense. They have multiple big deep threat receivers. And Josh Jacobs is a top five running back in the NFL. And the Raiders defense is improving. So I do think the Raiders will find themselves in the playoffs as well. Also, it helps that they're in a weaker division. Yes, they do play the Chiefs next week, but they have the they all they still have games against the Broncos and Chargers. They've already beaten both of them the last two weeks, and they should beat them again. So I think the I think the Ravens and Titans who faced each other in the playoffs last year I think right as of right now I think they're the two teams on the outside looking in which is in, insane. It's just how loaded the AFC is this year. Who would have thought the Dolphins would be one would be a top ten team in the NFL? Not me. I didn't expect that. It so, wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the Dolphins are a potential dark horse, not Super Bowl favorite but a dark horse team to go relatively deep in the playoffs. Because like you mentioned, they have a really good improving defense. They have a quarterback that has not made mistakes yet. And then they have a practically an option kind of style of running back game that kind of the Rams are doing too. Yes, Ahmed was really good. They also have Miles Gaskin, who's currently on IR, but he's been really good. And once he gets back, that just further emphasizes on their offense and what that offense can be with Tua at their disposal. So I think – the Miami Dolphins, how they do up against the Steelers and the Chiefs is yet to be seen if they get that far. But as of right now, they have a lot of youthful upside on both sides of the ball to really make a case for a deep run. The Dolphins' next three games are against the Broncos, who looked terrible against the Las Vegas Raiders this past weekend, the Cincinnati Bengals, and the New York Jets. Most likely, they'll be 9-3, and three, and, then, and then they're going to play the Chiefs at home. Now, as now, my NFL historian brain has got to point out, whenever the Chiefs go to Miami, it doesn't usually work out very well. 1971, 1990, 1994, Chiefs lost in the playoffs in Miami. I know that has nothing to do with now, but 
Miami is a tough place to play year round. They have Miami is low key one of the best home field advantages, and especially that that Miami is one of the few that allow fans even like mostly full capacity because Florida is crazy right now with with COVID. That's gonna be an electric atmosphere, and I think Chiefs and Dolphins, especially if the Dolphins are nine and three. Woo, that's gonna be a must watch game. That's good. That's gonna be a must watch game. The, the Dolphins are legit. I can't wait to see how they continue forward. And, I just, and you brought Miles Gaskin. What is it with the Dolphins and Washington Husky running backs? Uh, that, that's something I just now realized. Thank you, Mr. Crane. I just now realized that. All right. That is going to do it for episode 17 of Ahead of the Count on the Canyon Park Podcast. Johnny, any final words before we sign off? A lot of sports talk over the past two hours, including the Rich Report and now with you. I'm glad to be doing it. I love doing it with y'all. Thank you for the opportunity. We'll do it again next week. It, it is our pleasure. Like I said at the beginning of the, sh- it, at the, beginning of the show, be sure to check out CannonClark.com for, co- for content posted often weekly. Be sure to check out the Cannon Clark Spotify. Be sure to check out the Rich Report for our podcast. As like I said, we are both now the full-time co-host for that podcast. So fun, fun stuff happens there. So be sure to check that out. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny, for coming on as always. It is always great to have you on. For Johnny Crane, I am Sean Clark. This was Ahead of the Count. And for Colin Fuchs on Blinded by Sports in the previous segment, we will see you next week. Have a great weekend.